All right, well, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 13. We looked at the first half last week of 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you can turn there in your Bibles or your phones, we'll be looking at verses 23 to 29. If you're using the church Bibles here, that's uh, page 264. 2 Samuel chapter 13. I think um, just to give a little bit of context, we'll start back at verse 19 because the section we're looking at today is sort of the response to what happens in the first uh, section of chapter 13. So we'll start at verse 19 then of chapter 13. Though we're looking at 23 through 39. All right, so beginning at verse 19. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and he said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose And each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. And then the king arose and tore his garments, and he lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister, Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. 
And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would be glorified this day in our midst as we read this word from you. Help us, Lord, to discern the truth in this text, which speaks to us and encourages us, which warns us, indeed, which confronts us, and which, Lord, also comforts us as we come to you, people who are redeemed through our Savior. Father, bless my preaching that I might be faithful to present Jesus as our Savior and King, and bless the hearts of the people here that they might be faithful to listen, to apply the truths of your word to their hearts. By the work of the Spirit, we pray, and in Jesus' name, amen. So recently, I got to spend a week sailing with my dad, my elder brother, and uh, a good friend, and I thought it made sense while I was out there on the water thinking about nautical things to read Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. If you don't know uh, the story of Moby Dick, it's about this captain of a whaling ship, and the captain's name is Ahab. He loses one of his legs to a mysterious white whale, and he becomes obsessed with revenge, with getting revenge on this white whale. He ends up destroying himself and everybody who follows him, except for the narrator, of course. Revenge is a typical human response to injustice. And not just against white whales. The Count of Monte Cristo is another famous novel that describes the detailed revenge of one Edmund Dantes against everybody who has destroyed his life. And just like Captain Ahab, Dantes finds that revenge is self-destructive. Humans cannot pursue it without damaging themselves and those around them. And yet, when we feel injustice, how quickly we turn to revenge. Kids, when your brother or your sister grabs or breaks one of your toys, don't you want to take one of theirs? Parents, when your spouse shuts you out, don't you want to find a way to shut them out, too? We humans are made with God's law written on our hearts, so we hate injustice. But because we are sinful, we cannot be trusted to judge sin on our own. The Bible passage we just read makes that point very clear to us. It is taught generations of Bible readers that there are wrong, destructive ways to respond to injustice. So today, we'll look at two wrong ways to respond to injustice, and then we'll end by looking briefly at the right way. 
The first wrong way is illustrated by David. So my first point will be David's paralysis. David's paralysis. That's my first point. Uh, Last week we saw that when injustice is done in the land of Israel, right in David's family, no less, David is angry, but he does nothing. In this text, his paralysis continues. In fact, David's weakness is evident at almost every step in this text. Let me just walk you through it, showing you at least some of the ways that the narrator communicates David's weakness to us. It's it's one of the glaring themes of this text. So in the first section, if you're looking at your Bibles, in the first section there, uh, we've got this this discussion between Absalom and David. And Absalom plays David like a fiddle, right? He gets exactly what he wants. Uh, He first asks David to come to this sheep shearing party he's having in, in Israel. When you sheared your sheep, you had a big party. That's what you did. And so he asked David to come. But why does he want David to come? Because he doesn't really want David there. Right? He's been waiting two years for this. The problem is he can't just start by inviting Amnon because that would look suspicious. And he can't go directly to Amnon and invite him because I don't think they were exactly buddies at that point. Right? So he needs David to tell Amnon to go. As it is, David does appear suspicious even after two years of silence on Absalom's part. In verse 26, he asks... Why should he go? Right? It doesn't quite make sense. But the text says that Absalom pressed David. In fact, it uses that word twice. In verse 25 and 27. He's squeezing David like a lemon. And he gets exactly what he wants. He even gets David's blessing. Did you notice that? Verse 25. He gets David's blessing to murder his brother. Of course, David doesn't know that. But that's what he's going to do. What a fool he makes David look. And just like David was manipulated in the previous text to send Tamar to her doom, now he's manipulated to send Amnon to his doom. So that's David's weakness. On the other hand, of course, we can see Absalom's strength. Right? Not only does he get what he wants, but if you look at that little conversation between him and his servants, verses 28 to 29, notice three times you see the verb, he commanded. He commanded. He commanded. He's in charge. In fact, he's even in command of the exact moment at which Amnon dies. Right? He tells his servants, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Absalom is in control and David is not. He's paralyzed. Uh, When we move into the second section, we've got this uh, second conversation between David and Jonadab, mostly, right? Uh, Jonadab is a terrifying figure, isn't he? One, One commentator calls him the most dangerous man in this chapter because he's got wisdom, but he has no integrity. A dangerous combination. Uh, Last week, he tells Amnon how to violate his half-sister, who, by the way, is Jonadab's cousin. And here, he appears to know 
way too much about Absalom's plan to kill Amnon. Not exactly a friend of Amnon's, is he? So David is surrounded by these manipulative men. And in their hands, he's like child's Play-Doh. He is weak. Uh, just imagine this, this scene with Jonadab, right? So here's David. He's lying on the, the ground. His garments are torn. Uh, he's weeping. And Jonadab is standing above him, telling him that what he thinks is not even true. David thinks that all of his sons are dead. Jonadab happens to know that, in fact, only Amnon is dead. It's an image of weakness. David doesn't even know what's going on in his own kingdom, much less his own family. Notice the words Jonadab uses at the end of verse 32. He says, by the command of Absalom, another command of Absalom, this has been determined. Determined. Sounds like Absalom's the king, not David. And then finally, in the last section, verses 37 to 39, when Absalom flees to the land of Geshur, Geshur is where his mother was from, so this guy, Talmai, that's his grandfather. Uh, we're told in, in verse 39 that the spirit of David longed to go and see Absalom. Absalom has manipulated him. He's murdered his eldest son. Yet once more, David ignores the cries of justice. He is paralyzed. He's entirely passive throughout this whole chapter. He's weeping, just waiting for something to happen. He himself does nothing. David's weakness shows us two things. First, you don't respond to injustice by ignoring it. We definitely see that. And, and second, David is not the king that God's people need. Every Israelite who heard this story would say to themselves, yeah, David was a great king, but man, how the mighty have fallen. I guess we'll have to wait for a son of David to have a truly just king. But why is David so weak? You think about that a little bit? What's wrong with this guy? I mean, he's like Samson with his hair cut off all of a sudden. Everything's changed for him, it seems. This text does not directly give us the answers to this question. I think, though, that there are at least two things we can see and consider here. First, David has already shown us that he is not very good at disciplining his own family. Uh, you may recall early on in his rule, it's way back in chapter 3 of this book of 2 Samuel, his army commander, Joab, his right-hand man, betrays and murders Abner. Uh, who was in the midst of working out a deal with David, and he had David's uh, protection at the time. Well, Joab is David's nephew. And so David is angry. He even curses Joab, but he does nothing. He does not do justice. He ignores it. And in the same way, he does nothing when Amnon rapes Tamar. And he does nothing when Absalom murders Amnon. You know, you, you have to wonder, as you start to think about David's failures here, whether Solomon, when he was putting together the book of Proverbs, 
uh, and writing about the importance of disciplining and training your children. I mean, the book of Proverbs is written to train children, to teach them wisdom. You wonder if he thought about the failures of his father, if that influenced his writing. I realize it's easy to feel a lot of guilt when we talk about parenting. It's not my goal to lay on the guilt. But I think it's important to say, as we look at this period of David's life, we are not loving our children when we fail to confront their sin. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11 is a great passage that tells us that in our relationship with God, discipline is evidence of his love for us. It's actually proof of our, son, of, our, of our sonship, that we are his children. Real children are lovingly confronted when they sin because that is the path to restoration. That's the way. It has to happen. David is right to be tender with his children. Right? I think there is even something we can appreciate in, uh, about his words in verse 39, about David's spirit longing to go to his son, even despite his sin, his betrayal. But there's something very wrong about it, too. Because Absalom is being destroyed by his sin, and he's destroying other people. And David does nothing to try to intercede. That is not how God loves his children. But perhaps there's a second thing going on here, too. Maybe David feels like he has lost his moral credibility. Uh, his sons are doing what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah, right? We can all see that. It's obvious. Doubtless, he thinks to himself, how can I punish my sons for things that I myself did and, and, and taught them to do? It's a terrifying thing as a parent, right? To see your child make the same mistakes you know you made and feel powerless to confront them or, or help them because you know and they know you made the same mistakes and you make the same mistakes. But what is different about David's situation is that David was confronted for his sin and did repent. Nathan came to him and said, you are the man. It's you. He confronted him. David does not need to remain paralyzed by his weakness and his failures. And listen, if you have felt guilt and shame as you thought about your own failures to lead your children or to confront your friends, you do not need to be paralyzed by that either. David may have failed to restore his sons, but God does not fail to restore his household. If God is your father, there is always a path to restoration. The process of confrontation, repentance, and forgiveness is designed by God to restore you to a full relationship with God and with men so that you can hold up your head and live with a clear conscience. 
When you truly confess your sin, when you repent of it, and you receive the Lord's gracious pardon, neither the devil, nor your enemies, nor your family, nor your friends can throw it back in your face and say, who are you to talk? They can't do it because you have been cleansed. But this restoration, it cannot happen when injustice is not confronted. We must learn from David's paralysis here the importance of confronting and being confronted. Uh, which is why, you know, I think this is an important... We need to hear that we need godly friends in our life. Uh, and, and we need to tell our friends, look, please... If you even think I might be sinning in any of my relationships, confront me on it. I promise I will listen. I will not hold your confrontation against you. I'll listen to you. When I look at this passage, I think, where, where were David's friends? Where were Absalom's friends? Did they have no one with the boldness? To confront them? But so let's look at the second response to injustice in this text. Absalom's response. Absalom responds with revenge. Uh, so my second point, Absalom's revenge. One definition of revenge is to harm someone as punishment for harm they have done you or someone else. To harm someone as punishment for harm they have done you or someone else. Now, you may not think of yourself as a revengeful person because you're not like Captain Ahab chasing after a whale that ate your leg. Or you're not like even Absalom here taking two years to plan out his destruction of his enemy. But these are extreme examples of a very common human sin pattern to harm someone as punishment for harm they have done you or someone else. It is very difficult to live in close proximity to other people and not feel yourself harmed by them at some point. Whether it's intentional or not, whether you misread them or not, we feel harmed or offended by people all the time. And our gut is to respond with some sort of punishment. It can be so mild that we hardly notice it. Someone appears to ignore us after the Sunday service when we try to talk to them, so maybe next week we talk to someone else. Or maybe a spouse or a friend says something to embarrass us in a group. So what do we do? We strike back with a story that maybe embarrasses them a little bit. Maybe you aren't that obvious. Maybe you wait. You let it stew and come out in small, imperceptible punishments, right? A coldness on the ride home. A, a choice not to invite a friend to something normally you would have invited them to. Or a failure to defend your friend's good name in another situation. All of these things are revenge. And revenge is never the right response to injustice. You see, we tend to 
try to justify revenge by arguing that the motivation for it is justice. Maybe you noticed what Absalom said to his servants in verse 28. When he's telling them to kill Abnon, his, Amnon, his, his words, maybe they sounded eerily familiar to you. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. These words are almost exactly the words that God tells Joshua. Joshua, the leader of God's people, when they come into the promised land, God tells Joshua almost exactly these same words. Every Israelite boy would know these words. It's their history. Joshua is the hero. And Absalom appropriates these words for his own purposes, to justify his own version of justice. But he is lying to himself and his servants because what is always behind revenge is hatred. Hatred is always behind revenge, right? We saw this even in the verses that we read Today, verse 22 from last week, Absalom says he hates Amnon. And it's not some sort of selfless hatred as if that could exist in the human heart. This is selfish hatred. He's not concerned about his sister's honor here, right? That's what, that was how he would justify it, wouldn't he? He's not concerned about her honor. He tells her to be quiet. What he does is illegal, it is private, and it does not exonerate her. It's about his honor. Even worse, it's about his own thirst for power. Amnon is the firstborn son. Absalom is, appears to be the next guy up, the next one in line for the throne. Getting rid of him, it fits his purposes perfectly. It is not possible for humans to pursue revenge without being controlled by self-interest and hatred. Which is why the Bible is very clear. Christians may never engage in revenge. Let's be clear about this. There are a lot of books and movies and television shows that are all about the pursuit of personal vengeance. Right? I mentioned two classics at the beginning and there are plenty more. It's a popular topic. But Christians may never Go down that road. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Romans 12.19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Bible is clear on this. Should we seek justice? Absolutely. And we will talk more about that in a minute. Are we to act in self-defense? Definitely. We just read earlier, right, in the larger catechism, question 135, an application of the sixth commandment is the just defense of yours and other people's lives from violence. But revenge, we are never to pursue, no matter how serious or trivial the harm that has been done to you. This will take some thinking through. Sin is never obvious, 
you know that, right? The heart is deceptive above all things. Sin will not be obvious. You have to think it through. We can fall into revenge so easily. And there are also situations that are not revenge. So let me just give you one example at least to kind of get you thinking about this. Let's say I were to borrow Jim's guitar here for some youth event, maybe an outdoor barbecue or a cookout or something, and I leave it out in the rain and it's destroyed. It's ruined. Well, it would not be revenge if Jim decided at that point to uh, no longer trust me with his instruments and perhaps not lend his mandolin to me for the next camp out. That would not be revenge on his part, right? That would be wisdom. I have lost his trust. But what if I were to go to Jim and truly repent to him and try to make restitution for his guitar as best I could? Maybe it's a special edition and I couldn't fully, but do my best. And I show over a period of time that I really mean it. I've changed my careless ways. The, The repentance is real. And I want his trust back. Well, there could be a point there where if Jim refused uh, to trust me again, it could begin to look like revenge for ruining his guitar. Now, maybe that's a bit of a silly example, right? But we could apply that to very serious relational sins. There are situations where people, they lose our trust, right? And it's not revenge to withhold that trust. It's wisdom in those cases. But there are also situations where failing to forgive and restore could begin to look like revenge. And remember that even if you are only doing the harm in your heart, it still counts. So follow the example of your Savior, right? Jesus, he faced much injustice here on earth, but he did not hold too tightly to his rights. He had a much bigger goal in mind. He was looking to redeem a people. And so we need to turn now. We need to talk a little bit about the right way to respond to injustice. So my third point now, the right way. The right way. The first thing we need to do is cry out for injustice. We need to cry out. This is what both David and Absalom fail to do. David is silent. He lies on the ground and weeps. Truly the right thing to do when your son has been murdered. The right thing. But not the only thing to do in his case. He ignores the injustice that he is called as the king of Israel to judge. Absalom, likewise, keeps his mouth shut. In fact, he even silences his sister, Right, she actually does try to cry out for justice. She remembers back in verse 19, she puts the ashes on her head, she tears her robe, and she's symbolizing what has happened to her, her desolation, and she walks through the streets crying out. She's making visible the injustice she's experienced. And what does her brother tell her? He tells her to hold her peace. Now, he should have taken her right to King David or the elders of the land, whoever judged these things, and demanded justice. It's hard to believe 
that David would have been able to do nothing if Absalom had publicly demanded justice for his sister. But Absalom only believes in his own justice, which is really just more injustice, which leads to more sin, which leads to more destruction. The second thing we need to do is we cry out for injustice, the first thing. The second thing, we need to respond to evil with good. We need to respond to evil with good. This is a very, very difficult command, but we find it in the Old Testament and the New. I read Leviticus 19.18 earlier, which tells us instead of taking vengeance to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Romans 12.20 is even more specific. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we let hatred build inside of ourselves because of injustice we've experienced or seen, we are in danger of being overcome by evil. We have to let it go. This story is a warning. You can't touch fire and not be burned. The effects of sin, they're just boiling out everywhere in this text, right? You can't overcome evil with evil. That's what everybody keeps trying to do. You can't do it. It just explodes on you. If you indulge in it, it will always overwhelm you. The only way to live with injustice is to believe that even if human justice fails, God will judge it. Tim Keller writes on this topic, if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and I will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. This brings us right to the third thing we need to do when we respond to injustice. Thirdly, we need to leave vengeance to the Lord. We need to leave vengeance to the Lord. Sometimes when we cry out for justice, we won't get it. Maybe there's not enough evidence for the crime. Maybe the judges are corrupt. Maybe they are failing. Maybe they're not smart enough. In those cases, we must simply call on the Lord to right every wrong in his time. He is certainly able to do it. Vengeance is mine, he says. We know he will judge sin because what's happening in this text, we can see it. It's, it's happening. In chapter 12, verse 10, David told, God told David, he warned him, look, because of what has happened, because of what you have done, the sword will not depart from your house. And it's happening. God is not mocked. What people sow, they will reap. This is a warning for us. Every crime has a price, and God is perfectly just. He will weigh them all. King Jesus is not weak like David. He will not fail to confront every injustice 
He hears every cry of the oppressed, and everyone will gain a hearing in his presence. He knows every tear, and everyone will be accounted for. The only escape from his perfect vengeance is his perfect atonement. That's the only escape. You either claim Jesus' payment for your vengeful acts and thoughts, or you pay for them yourself. You need a king who's unlike David, who can restore his household, who has the strength to confront you and to conquer you, and who has the love to redeem you and restore you. You've played all the parts in this story, haven't you? Like Tamar, you've been sinned against and silenced. Like David, you've been paralyzed by your guilt, your failure. Like Absalom, you've done harm to those who've harmed you. So turn to the Lord this morning and he will give you healing from Tamar's shame cleansing from David's guilt and love that overcomes Absalom's hate. He gives you a picture and physical proof of it right here in the Lord's Supper. And so as we turn now to the Lord's Supper, let me urge you to view this as coming to you directly from your Savior, from your King. He gives this to you as a pledge of his love for you, his people. He gives this to you to remind you of his death for you once for all to cleanse you fully. And let this meal also serve as a commitment, his commitment to you, to help you grow in holiness. For through it, he promises to strengthen you spiritually in your love for him for his people and for your enemies. Without the work of Christ, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot live as a Christian. But in the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells you that if you trust in him, if you repent of your sin, if you call on his name, he makes you a Christian and he gives you the strength to live as a Christian. Now this meal is intended for God's people. So if you're not really trusting Christ as your Savior and your King, or if you're a believer but you're aware of sin that you're not repenting of, please don't take part in this meal. The Bible warns that those who eat and drink of this uh, supper without understanding or accepting what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. We take that seriously. We ask you to do the same. At the same time, this meal is not for those who are perfect. It is for the broken. It's for the contrite. It is for those paralyzed by their guilt and shame who lay themselves at the feet of Christ asking to be filled. If that is you, come receive this meal from your Savior. We're going to take a few moments of silence to examine our hearts 
to joyfully prepare ourselves for the supper. After that, I'll close us in prayer. And while I do that, elders, if you would come forward and just sit in the front so you'll be ready to help serve the supper when I finish praying. God, we praise you for your power, for your grace. You give us a gift that we do not deserve, the gift of salvation, the gift of relationship with the Holy One, the creator of the universe. We confess we are unworthy to come to this table today because we're not a righteous people. We're not holy. We are revengeful. We are murderous. But we, Lord, do trust in your grace and your mercy. You, Lord, give us in Christ a way to be restored. And we thank you for that. We claim it as we confess our sins, as we repent of them. We claim your restoration, your pardon. And we ask that you would strengthen us and grow us in holiness so that we might live for Christ. In whose name we pray. Thank you.